Hey everybody, welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast. We're the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's Game of Thrones. And of course, I'm your host, Aaron. And joining me today is Anthony Ladon. Say hi, Anthony. Hi, Anthony. <laughs> uh, the old jokes are the best jokes. Uh, we, we have been, for the better part of this year, co-writing a book uh, called Gods of Thrones. And if you are hearing this podcast right now, it means you can go and order it. Right now on Amazon.com, there will be a link uh, of that uh, for that in the show notes. If you're a Kickstarter patron, backer, thank you very much for your support. You should already have gotten your ebook uh, some days ago. And if you have the book in your hands, your, di- your, your, digital, your digital copy in your digital hands, and you are moved to give us a review on Amazon, that would be awesome because we're, uh, we're trying to take over Amazon, you know. Yeah, absolutely. had a long-standing beef with with Bezos. So if we can just like run his uh, Kindle <laughs> desktop publishing, uh, that would be that would be pretty awesome. Yeah, and I guess we should probably uh, make it clear that we're not looking for good reviews. Mm-hmm. We want honest reviews. Yes, that will happen to be good because we wrote a good book. Exactly. But in addition to the fact that they are honest reviews, they are reviews. Yes, and yes. we need we need at least fifty reviews. To really promote the book well, uh-huh. so let's let's try to get that fifty. Yeah, and we're this is going to be a series um, of nakedly disguised advertisements for both Anthony and I's book, and I don't know if you've heard it. George Martin actually has a book later on in November. Uh, he writes books. He does. He's he's a, a, a little known TV scriptwriter. That's that's got. Uh, it, it's weird. It's it, this is kind of he's he's doing the Cimmerillion before. Before he's finished the Lord of the Rings, it's, it's an interesting choice. But he's he's yeah. doing this Targaryen history, this Fire and Blood, which yeah. we're we're going to be doing a couple weeks here, Gods of Thrones, and when that comes out, uh, I'm going to have Anthony joining me. We're going to have other couple uh, podcasters joining me. Uh, Joanna from Cast of Kings is going to be uh, coming on to talk about Fire and Blood. We're going to have Kim Rinfro from The Insider again. Anthony will be joining me, maybe Jim, but as you know, he's more of a TV watcher and and not as much. Not as not a much deep dive into the history of Westeros as, as myself, but we're going to be doing over the next five or six weeks. We're going to be talking about uh, topics from our book Gods of Thrones, and also kind of reviewing and doing a book club uh, of Fire and Blood when it comes out later in November. So that is kind of like if you weren't going along with Jim and I on our season three rewatch, we kind of talked about the schedule here. We're going to really blow up November and December a little bit with Game of Thrones, and it'll just be a, sh- uh, a short few months until we're in the middle of season eight. You can send feedback on this series to Game of Thrones at baldmove.com like you always do, probably prioritizing kind of like book discussion over just general, what do you think is going to happen in season eight? Because also, desperately trying to avoid spoilers for season eight for myself, So, uh, and it's almost upon us. So I guess first things first, maybe we talk about something that kind of Jim and I do on our commission podcast, our experience with the thing we're about to talk about. What's your exposure level to Game of Thrones? What brought you into the fandom? Mm. Are, I guess I'm assuming that you're a fan. I mean, I, I've been working with you for, for about 10 months, so, so I'm pretty sure you are. But uh, just talk about your background with the Game of Thrones universe, Anthony. I was one of the, one of the many, many people whose first exposure to Game of Thrones was with Season 1, Episode 1. Although I'm a big fan of fantasy literature... I, like many people who are, 
uh, am often disappointed with a lot of fantasy literature. <laughs> right. So when I saw episode one, season one, season one, episode one, for the first time, I realized this is different. There's something, something else. There's there's some something behind here that's not derivative. That's that's not uh, not embarrassing at times. The dialogue isn't embarrassing. Right. So what I did was that very week that I saw that, um, I ran out and bought the first book, and I just started plowing through the books. Um, so that by the time season one ended, I was already you know three books in. Oh wow! So, um, so I was going to ask you because yeah. like there's always that like surface tension when right. you get to the end of the first volume. It's uh-huh. like ah, can I should I stay here and preserve the the purity of, or do I keep charging ahead? Clearly, you oh kept yeah, charging ahead. I, I kept keep ch- charging ahead for sure. And and I I think so. I've always sort of read the thing as a sort of almost parallel parallel narratives. Uh, and enjoyed those as such. So my history isn't certainly isn't as long as people who were on mm-hmm. with game in you know the early two thousands. Right, right. Um, but that's my that's my basic history of it. I mean, we could talk about the ba- the, the, the sort of the the background for the idea of this particular book. But I want to ask you your because I I mean I've listened to a lot of Bald Move podcasts, but I've never heard you talk about how you first encountered. Martin's work and how you you and Jim decided to start covering this. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of that like backstory is kind of lost to internet because I used to be on a I used to co-host with another guy uh, the Night's Watch podcast and then we stopped doing that and those podcasts kind of like fell off the internet. I was aware of Game of Thrones within a few years of it first being published because I you know was a big Tolkien fan when I was in high school, big fantasy sci-fi nerd. And I had also had I'd always tried to recapture that magic, you know, and I was like trying to get into the Wheel of Time, as books. we and all I, do. I've I, and I've tried to I, I tried to make it through Wheel of Time three or four times, yeah. and like there's just so much derivative from Tolkien. There's so many long uh, aggressively. Uh, apostrophized and umulet bearing names that was was confounding but several of those things i've tried different things and uh i remember when someone suggested you should really try game of thrones i was like yeah whatever and then hbo was going to adapt it and i remember watching the first episode and having a hard time figuring out what the was going on what the hell was going on because it, it reminded me a lot of the wire there's just like so many characters and so many intense mm. political situations and like who is this dead guy at the stones on his eyes who are the two blondes that are talking oh my god they're brother and sister jesus he just threw that person out a window it's a kid so i remember really liking it and kind of picking it up as i went along and then when you got to the climax of season one the beheading of ned spoilers for season one of game of thrones <laughs> I, I remember thinking, wow, I've never seen anything like that. That's so ballsy to have this central character that you just realistically terminate at the end. It really grabbed my attention. So I tried, I, you know, Jim and I were podcasting by then, tried to get him into it, but he's always a tough sell on fantasy. So I got a guy that I, I worked with and, and I started uh, co-hosting with him. But uh, I read the first book. And the first two books in between season one and season two. Because right. my plan was I was going to kind of 
be the guy that provided the background lore, but not too far ahead that I could just like start being an obnoxious dick about spoilers. But then, you know, after the second season, I was weak and I read, you know, <laughs> I, I read the, the rest of them, including Feast and, and Dance. And then Jim, you know, like I said, when uh, the podcaster and I stopped doing it, uh, by that time, Jim had heard enough of our podcast and me excited enough about it. And also, crucially, I think, Around the same time, around season three, I started noticing non-fantasy people picking up, like Bill right. Simmons, who, like, all throughout season two, people were like, you should, you should watch this. He's like, I, I don't like this, like, walking through woods genre, like, you know, and dragon genre. And then, you know, you get them hooked and they realize that that's, that's like saying I don't want to watch The Wire because I don't like cop procedurals. Right. It elevates it. So I'm a self-described lore whore. And the lore in Game of Thrones is amongst the tastiest and deep of, of, of fantasy genres. It just goes on forever and ever. So there's a whole tome of Targaryen history about the, the hitters right. we're talking about. So yeah. uh, I, I was curious because, like, so we're both Game of Thrones fans, and I've been podcasting about this for going on seven years now. I guess, what, what do you bring to the table above and beyond your average fan? Right. I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. If, if my fandom will be deemed worthy. But here's my sort of professional hazard is that I teach religion. I teach uh, at a, a Christian seminary. And uh, I've done a lot of reading and writing about mo- ancient and modern religions. So one of the first things I noticed about Martin's world was that sort of passes the authenticity smell test because it is rotten with religion. Do you remember like when you were watching or reading when that first, oh, this actually, this guy's done his homework or this feels real? Yeah. So I was confused. At the very beginning, I was confused because I figured that these maesters were Mm. some sort of priestly... Like a monk set. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because really, in the in the medieval world, you didn't have maesters, right? It, you know, in in, that, in our world, right, right, there weren't maesters, right. But the Catholic Church mm-hmm. would employ people to be academics, right. So you get that, that's how you get people like Galileo. So I, I think initially I was I was confused about this whole business with the maesters, and I figured they must be sort of the equivalent to the Catholic Church. And I didn't... Are they the Jesuit arm? Yes, something like that. And when I realized that these are actually distinct groups, Mm -hmm. the the, the faith of the seven is distinct from from the maesters, it made me, you know, sort of piqued my curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a moment in the first season when... In the in the show, Picel is sort of saying, uh, you know, Ned's Ned's head is on the chopping block basically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Picel is speaking to the whole group, mm-hmm. and he says, "The mother is of mercy, so you could choose mercy, Joffrey, right? right. Um, but of course, the father is of justice. He's, so a, he's could, a real hard ass. Yeah, you so. could choose you could <laughs> choose justice, and of course, what Picel's doing is he's saying, "Hey, whatever you choose, Joffrey, we got your back. Uh, we're going to give you." Theological backing mm-hmm. for whatever you say, mm-hmm. and I realized that this is not this. These were not Picel's lines in the books, mm-hmm. right? These these this is the High Septon that's, mm-hmm. that's t- mm-hmm. talking about this in the books. So that was season one, and I was kind of new to it, and so I started wondering, like, oh, I wonder what's really going on with, and what are the differences here? And then, of course, f- 
from the from beginning of season two, re- religion is all over the place because you've right. got Melisandre. Right. And I think at that point, I was I was kind of curious to see where this all was going to go. Right. Long story short, I I tend to see the world in in certain categories because right. because of my field of study, and I realized that Martin had really done his homework when it came to sort of the this sort of medieval saturation with worship and the sacred and things like that and how it all wor- works like culturally and politically and and, and kind of you know the, those intersections that's right now i heard that you also taught game of thrones in in the form of an ethics class at i some did point. oh that that was what, that but like is is it essentially the the moral is there is no ethics uh <laughs> no like, like, no i'm so glad you asked so um so I did this class. I was teaching adjunct uh, school, University of the Pacific in California, mm. and this is it's it's kind of a, a cool idea for a class. Basically, every student that goes through their four year institution has to take an ethics class at the be- at their the beginning and at the end of their their career as a student. So. As all adjunct professors know, sometimes you get like a call two days before. The class starts. Hey, we got someone that dropped out. Can you teach this class? I'd never Mm. taught a class on ethics Mm. before. So I thought, all right, in order to make this work, I've got to make this class my own. I need to make them choose books that I've read before. Right. So here are the three options that I gave them. I gave them uh, A Year of Living Biblically by A.J. Jacobs, which is sort of like comedy journal, basically. I gave them the autobiography of Malcolm X, which is one of my favorite books, and I gave them a Game of Thrones. And what I did with the book was they were they were going to chart just they were, they had to pick one character, and the example that I gave was Ned Stark, because philosophically speaking, I think Ned Stark is a great example of deontology. He's got this idea of this idea of honor. Mm-hmm. That's like this heavenly standard, and you've right. got to live up to it. He is not a consequentialist by nature. A consequentialist is saying, well, what decision is going to make the most people happy for the longest duration of time? So even if it may be the wrong thing, even if I have to tell this little lie, right. it, it'll save a million lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I, got, you know, I was trying to teach these concepts to the students – uh, philosophically speaking, and you know, so I got them to think: Is Ned Stark a deontologist or a consequentialist? And then, of course, at the end, Ned totally subverts this because he decides to lie because he thinks it's going to save the realm or save his children or something. Right. And then, of course, Martin chops his head off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I just, I, I just love, I just love to bring some sort of theological or, or philosophical background into my reading of these, these texts. And that, I, I think that's a little bit of what we're doing in this book too. Yeah. I was going to say like, it seems like from that acorn, uh, a mighty tree has grown because I clearly, as you started talking about those concepts, I'm like, I know exactly in, in the book, gods of thrones where it eventually went with this. Before before we get too much further, I feel like we need to take a step back and talk about this book, Gods of Thrones, uh, subtitled The Pilgrims. The Pilgrim's Guide to the Religions of Ice and Fire. Thank you. What is this book? What are we trying to do with it? And the other thing is, like, I feel like that subtitle makes it seem very serious and intimidating, when in reality, we've enjoyed like super serious 
but tongue-in-cheek analysis of pop culture. Did you ever read um, Board of the Rings by the, the National Lampoon's guys? I have. All right. So I, when I remember first looking at that book and opening it up, I just it felt sacrilegious to me because uh-huh. I was so in love uh-huh. with Middle Earth that to, to hear people sort of making fun of hobbits and whatnot seemed, um, I don't know, I, just, I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready for it. Right. But looking back, mm-hmm. it's kind of brilliant. It's kind of brilliant. And it, and it's one of those those cases where mockery is the best form of flattery. Right. And and uh I think we're doing a little bit of that in this book. And there's like I there's a lo- I have a long history of this kind of stuff. Like I really liked Larry Niven growing up and I found in a, a collection of sto- short stories that he wrote this really dry scientific examination of what Superman's sex life would be like. <laughs> and it was called Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex. And he does things, calculates the, the ejaculate speed of, of Superman and in the throes of passion, how would he control his... And if he was exposed to red krypton, his spermazoa might do this and be exposed... And it's like... Turn into little ants or something. Yeah, it's, it's like if a scientist had decided to get really super serious about... I always think like... Serious examination of something that's kind of trivial is fun. Right. No, I think, and I think that there's an element of this where it's, you know, some people just need to just see the world in particles. Some people see it in sort of grand narratives. Right. And however you, whatever your approach is to your worldview. Right. You're going to have an opinion about sort of these, these larger cultural phenomena. And, And Martin's, the world that Martin has built is going to attract all kinds of different opinions, right? right. right? And it just so happens that you and I have opinions about religions Mm -hmm. and gods and sociology. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, and we also want to make a couple jokes along the way. Yeah. Like you'll, we'll be like quoting from Confucius and then suddenly uh, we work in a lyric from the notorious B.I.G., or Absolutely. we'll we'll be talking about br- the possibility of Bran using his Weirwood network to transcend the boundaries of time and space, and then suddenly we talk about uh, the Futurama episode where Fry went back and impregnates his own grandmother. It's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not like Family Guy humor where it's just pop culture references for the sake of it. I love the way we use footnotes. If you get a footnote, it might be a reference to a material, or it might be a meta joke about something that we're making. It's 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 that kind of that kind of book. It's a little bit like if Christopher Guest was going to do a mockumentary on George Martin's sure. religious landscape. Right, 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 right. But you know, if you know Christopher Guest, you know that he's done a lot of research and he really sure. understands the world that he's mocking. Which is right? why, like, that's the thing. Like, the the sturdier the bones that humor has to build upon, the funnier it is. I think so. Like, I the think so. the more real and 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 studious the scholarship, the 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 more fun you can have with the the material itself. My problem always was that my some for some reason. I thought the 1980s was the funniest decade, and so <laughs> all, most of my footnotes relate to some bit of co- uh, pop culture from the 1980s. Right, and then uh, you were always saying, "Come on, we yeah. can't have another David Hasselhoff joke." Right, right, yeah. <laughs> What's the thing is like because I'm I'm in that old Gen X category where I got it. 
Like, yeah, I, I actually really like there's, there's like an evil twin joke that you make. About- there was a there was a period in the 1980s where every television show. Sure, right. If you had like a really strong male lead, uh-huh. he would encounter at some point. Sure. A doppelganger evil version of himself. Right. With a goatee. Right. The right. goatee was essential. I do, I, I do think the original Star Trek series with Spock, uh, it, they had the, the the mirror universe where Spock was still logical, but he had the goatee and he's evil. It was sort of the Bizarro. Spock. Kirk was a warlord right. and like all that stuff. So it's like yeah, yeah. You definitely, if if you want to read evil, you throw a goatee on him. So the the goatee is the 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 symbol, right? The symbol that what we're really dealing with here is. I mean, this- if you're writing this book for Aaron, you could have gotten all the Knight Rider, A Team, <laughs> Airwolf. All the references you wanted, and I would have eaten it up. But so we tried. We we tried. We, it's not saturated. The book isn't saturated no. with snark. No. But you know, we we had we wanted to have fun with it. We wanted to have fun writing it. Right. So that's In fact, just- I remember like towards the end, we're like, you know what? We're trying to do too much riffing because it is the tone is tough. You don't want to be. It's well, like let me give you an example. So well, this is one of the, sort of the primary sections that I worked on early on was to describe what religion is. Mm-hmm. And so I started with Emil Durkheim, who is a mm-hmm. sociologist. Right. And the way that I got it, Durkheim was to say, okay, so here's what Durkheim says religion is. Now let's figure out what this looks like it, when comparing Ned Stark and Tywin Lannister. Mm-hmm. Like according to Durkheim's perspective on what to be a good religious society, which of these two characters leaves their family in the best position when they leave when they exit the stage. Mm-hmm. So so part of that can kind of get a little, you know, if 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 you don't care about Durkheim, I feel I I am nodding off as you're talking yes, about right. it, right? Dur- if you don't care about Emil Durkheim, <laughs> then then damn you. Why are you so anti-French? Um but no, if you don't care about Emil Durkheim, you're going to need a David Hasselhoff joke. Right. Peppered in there. Just to smooth things over. Yeah. I don't know. And, but, but that's just how I think. And people that know you from your um, podcasting days know that you are no stranger to some humorous interjection from time yeah. to time. Yeah. I like to keep it light. So is that – did we say what the book's about? The way I describe this book to people, like my elevator pitch is this is a work of comparative uh, religion that attempts to – uh, analyze and interrogate the religions of Westeros and Essos with their real life counterparts and try to derive like all the different parts that George has put together for the individual uh, religions and then use that as like a lens, you know, cause like game of Thrones analysis and a song of ice and fire analysis has been done to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, we haven't gotten a new book in quite some time. So this just gives you another thing that you can appreciate Ned or Rob Stark or Catelyn. Yeah. I don't know why I'm stuck on Starks. Tyrion, the hound. No, the Starks are, are, they're definitely a fan favorite. They they, they are sort of the, the the initial seed that's planted that right. introduces us to the world. So so this book, like for instance, will take a concept like for instance a particular chapter on the religion of Relor. Mm-hmm. But then the chapter is going to have sort of a travel guide. Mm-hmm. So there's like if if you if you happen to find yourself in conversation with. You know, a Relor missionary. Here's mm-hmm. here's what you're going to want to do do about that. We do a deep dive into the religion. We do a character study. We'll do a historical backdrop. Like for instance, in that chapter, I think we talk about Zoroastrianism. Right. Then we'll do a fan theory. Did I ever say fan theory? I don't think I did. Mm-mm. 
So then we'll we'll play up with a fan theory. And then we end with a bird's eye view. We're basically talking not necessarily about the in-world universe, but we're talking about you know maybe a text that influenced Martin or an interview Martin gave that kind of sheds light on on the text. So um, so every every chapter is sort of broken down into these different elements. Mm-hmm. I feel like at this point you either know the books for you or not. Do you think that you think people will buy the book? I think people will buy the book. Yeah, I'm not sure. let's release the podcast and find out so my next question is obviously this book was your idea i was kind of minding my own business in the middle of the winter of this year Mm. and i got i get an email from you saying hey i've been thinking about this and would you be interested in that and when did you get the the idea when did this when did you get the idea and when did you decide to get serious about it well i think that Anyone who listens to Bald Move regularly knows that you are that you have a sort of a religious backstory and that you are kind of still fascinated by religion. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of a strange strange person in that way. A lot of people who have a religious backstory end up trying to sort of bracket it out or forget it or whatever. Right. Um, rather than deal with it. So I think a lot, a lot of the times you, in your podcast, you would sort of bring up some of the, the religious parts of the story. And so I thought, and I was a bald move listener. So I was thinking, well, here's a guy that's interested in enough in sort of the way people think and the way the, the, the world works, basically, and the way the medieval world has to work if if it's sort of rife with, with religious pluralism and i thought i it would be really fun it'd be really fun to sort of get really sort of in the weeds mm-hmm. with with religion and i figured i bet you aaron would be down for something like this he seems he seems like a kind of a curious and open-minded kind of guy i was i was your first first choice as oh yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, I'm I'm flattered. I never asked you that before. I mean, I never asked. I well, ne- I first asked David Chin. I never he asked said Martin. No. Then I went. Yeah. <laughs> then I then I sent a request through uh, Martin's agent. Yeah. And- no. No, I figured um, it would be good because um, at that point I I hadn't read a World of Ice and Fire yet. Mm, right. And I figured you probably had. And I thought if I could sort of bring some of the. Um, sort of religious studies aspect of this and Aaron could bring sort of the the deep knowledge of the lore then maybe my chocolate would be in your peanut butter so to speak it was a nice synthesis i thought because like a lot of times we know when in the early goings cuz you had an idea for a few kind of chapters on your own and then like that would springboard other conversations and sometimes you know you would send me a text like you know, I got this thing. Can you think of an example from Game of Thrones? I'm yeah. like, well, that reminds me of blah, blah, blah. But then simultaneously, when I'd read your stuff and you're talking about, like, the different ways that these the real-life religions intersect, that I that would, like, prick something from my religious yeah. education. And I think eventually studies. it started working in reverse, too, because yeah. I, remember, I remember thinking early on, like, boy, this sort of Westerosi democracy thing, I'm not sure if this is going to work out. It seems like it seems like Aaron's putting a lot of stock into this, and then when I started reading through World of Ice of Fire, I was thinking, "Oh no, this is 
There's like four or five different examples of d- democracy in Martin's that's what world. Been, that's what I've been screaming for the last few seasons. Like people <laughs> like, oh, that's and you're not going to have a proto democracy. That's anachronistic. And I'm like, yeah. ah. So eventually, I was I was kind of won over, and I thought, no, this actually would be a great way to end book one. All right, so this kind of brings us to a question I've been wanting to ask you, and I never have. Uh-huh. Um, so this is as good a place as any. So clearly, you've got a religious backstory. Mm-hmm. You might have talked about this on the pod before, but I, I wonder if your story kind of uniquely prepares you to appreciate story like golden age of television offerings like game of thrones and leftovers that are playing with religious themes Mm -hmm. do you feel like your journey prepared you in some way to give the criticism that you're able to give with those kinds of television shows i think the only thing that the one of the things I bring to these types of tables is the fact that I was deeply religious and deeply devout to a very quirky, uh, culty, f- very fundamentalist branch of, of Christianity. So, like, it's very hard for me to, in a way that a lot of people that are like, you know, died in the wool from birth atheists, uh, never had any religious background, they're, they're very dismissive of the topic. And as a consequence, I remember being the kid that was very devout, a very, very devout Jehovah's Witness, but loved uh, Star Trek. And it always kind of bummed me out when, like, Picard or whatever get on a soapbox about religion and or, like, get on the high horse about evolution. And I always felt like I was talked down to and disre- kind of, like, disrespected. I, I didn't stop watching because, like, you know, geez, if you're going to... There's two options if you're a, a very religious, fundamental person and you're wanting to enjoy pop culture. You either have to <laughs> sw- swallow a little bit of that or you just got to unplug from pop culture altogether. And, and I love me my starships and my phasers right. and my photon sure. torpedoes. So I always remember what it's like that. Like I don't think that if you're a person of religious faith that you're a dummy or you're deluded or you're – it's fascinating. And it's sometimes in, in a lot of ways I miss it. I miss – the certainty and kind of the peace and like sense of like belonging and like the universe is kind of clicking over for you that that have like that genuine faith. So like when I get a, a, approach a topic of of leftovers, uh, for example, I thought that I did I did well because I could articulate a voice of a character like Matt who was a devout Christian. Uh, even, you know, in this kind of like apocalyptic age, I could also get in the mind of a guy like uh, Kevin Garvey, who is a pretty uh, rationalist, but he is seeing these incredible things. And he's, he's, you know, kind of like uh, Saul on the road to Damascus. He's, he doesn't want to believe, but he's kind of forced to, I, you know, I've I've often wondered what if I went out my front door and I saw the Tetragrammaton 500 miles high written in flames across the sky. I mean, Jim and I talk about this podcast, like my reaction is like, I guess I'd hit my, my knees and hit the ground. I start praying because like sh- I, I done done goofed, I done fucked up. Maybe I, I see myself as a, a translator between those. Like right. you, you got a primarily an atheist topic that I can approach from a, a, a place of like, you know, faith and respect for that tradition. Or if it's a religious topic and I'm trying to break down like what this feels like to someone that maybe not have, have felt it. Um, I, I can do that. I, I've got an ear. Like I still, I haven't lost that ear of like the faith. Like, oh, that hits me funny, you know. And that's something I think it, it works well with, with Gemini. Is that like I, I've heard so many times, tell the truth with love. 
you know, you can tell your truth right. and how you approach it from a way that's not alienating and a way that like makes sense. Right. So you have a certain empathy. You have a certain empathy for people who are religious way down in their bones. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because how can I how can I hate that person? Because that person used to be me. I think a lot of people do hate that person primarily because it used to be them. I think that is a an interesting reaction <laughs> that should be worked through by people. Because <laughs> you know what what's hate get you at the end of the day? No, you know, I I you're, I think you're right about that, and I think with something like um, Game of Thrones, I mean, I think that there's so much in in that narrative that's sort of foreign, mm-hmm. right? That you know, you're sort of trying to navigate. You, as a reader or a viewer, you're you're sort of trying to translate what it would be like to be in a pre-technological society. What it would be like to live in a world where, at any moment, someone could uh, bombard you on the King's Road and just right. You know, it's just a, it's a complete. The medieval world is just a completely different place. Right. I think a lot of times you can kind of miss how religious it is mm-hmm. until like someone like Melisandre comes up and like puts it in your face. Right. Right. So, in fact, I saw an interview with Martin once where the person interviewing him said, "You know, there's not really a whole lot of religion in your books, though." Mm. And he kind of looked at her incredu- incredulously and just said, "It's all over the place. What are you right. talking about?" So I think. I think maybe because you have developed a sense of sort of uh, like you use the word translator because you have been able to translate the sacred and the secular for so long in your own life that you it makes you kind of a good translator for people who may not see how religious Martin's world is mm-hmm. and why it even matters, mm-hmm. right? Why why would this even matter to someone like Tyrion, for instance? who is pretty, you know, sacrilegious. Right. What is it about his world that's motivating him that that relates in some way to the religion of his birth and the religion that he's eventually converting to? Yeah, that's another thing that I think is draws me to things like the leftovers and Game of Thrones because I'm very I'm very interested in why and how people change their core belief system. As someone that's that's changed a lot in the last decade or two, I'm interested in, in seeing people like Tyrion, who is one of the, the, the flag bearers of the, the skeptic standard in Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. start to get a form of faith, maybe not in organized religion, but in a power greater than him, even if that's just dragons and Danny, mm-hmm. uh, seeing the, the hound, you know, start to soften and think, you know, maybe there's there's something you know uh, beneath all the the bullshit and pageantry of knighthood and all this other crap maybe there is something to like this core faith and this like maybe you can find absolution and and love and forgiveness even if it's not comforting to the hound he's sort of He's, right. he's being forced to re- rethink a few categories right. right it reminds me a lot of actually uh is it Jack London's uh, White Fang? Like he's this vicious animal, but he's like uh, the, the the whole plot of White Fang. He he finds himself all these different masters, and like there's the master of hate right. and the master of pain. At the end, he finds mm-hmm. the master of love. That like it, it doesn't feel right. Like I'm in this warm house, and like this right. guy's wanting. He's raising his hand, and is, is he going to hit me? But oh, he's petting me, and I don't like this. But it kind of feels good too. Right. There's a little <laughs> bit of that with uh, if you read between the lines with with the hound and his experience in the Quiet Isle. If you're in the books, right. or uh, with uh, Septon McShane, 
uh, in the sure, show where sure. you can see that he's 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 bristling because he doesn't want uh-huh. to accept this. Uh-huh. Um, but but uh, he's he's trying or, or it's winning him over. Until think, until someone yeah. kills the Septon and he has to eat every chicken in a room again. So, <laughs> I mean, I think that's part of one of the, that's one of the challenges for writing this book is to not only sort of explain how these religious systems work in world, but also talk about how these key characters mm-hmm. have to sort of navigate this world of religion. Uh, even if they themselves are not the most pious people in the world, they've got to sort of figure out right. how you know how to sort of use use the veneer of religion as as sort of a political weapon. Or you're like Arya, you encounter someone from a different culture, and then you wonder, like, is this if this you know are these faceless men are are they going to be able to solve something for me that I. The, the 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 gods of the north and the gods of the south probably couldn't solve for me. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to me to sort of look at the history, the 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 real world history of of the Middle Ages, and start asking questions like, well, what would this, what would it have been like for someone like Arya or Tyrion, you know, start examining some other religion that that is not their birth religion. Mm-hmm. And decide. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look into this. 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 This is. This is too. This maybe is too good to be true. Right. But boy, if this could solve some of my problems, I'm. I'm. I'm going for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I think it's interesting too how. Um, you know, I grew up. You, you grow up in. If you, if you grow up in a religious tradition, I think it's amazing how much you assume that everybody else kind of rolls Judeo Christian. Right. <laughs> and I remember like one of the first things. Uh, I was reading something about the Mongols and how Genghis Khan would not, you know, the, the idea that that someone would convert to their religion was absurd to them because we worship these gods that live in the mountains, like the Himalayans, right. and like you know, it's 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 obvious why we would think they're awesome, but why would anyone else give a shit about them? So right. like, keep worshiping your gods. Our gods are up in the mountain. They're great. We like them. They're powerful. Sure. We're obviously kicking your ass. Maybe your god wants us to kick your ass too. But the idea that like it wouldn't be like I always thought that. Every time a religion would come into conflict, it would have to like one would dominate the other, and it's always like you got to right. convert to this. And but yeah, I mean, I think you just described the sort of the modus operandi of Rome. Yes, which is basically you know we're going to rule the world, right? And um, you're going to pay tribute, right? And we're going to put up a temple to the Caesar, right? Or you know, or Jupiter or whatever, right? We're going to put up a temple in your town. Right. And we just assume that you're going to keep worshiping your gods. Yeah, yeah. And as long as you pay tribute and you know bow yeah. when the, the Caesar comes to town, right? We're we're good. And they're very peanut butter and chocolate. Like, ooh, I like I like your Jesus. Let's <laughs> yeah. make his birthday be <laughs> right. The return of the, the when our when our son comes back, and then uh, we got these pagans. Let's uh, bring some tree worship into it. Right. And, yeah. So I think then that got a cr- lot of uh, there were a lot of. In the ancient world, there were a yeah. lot of um, religious systems that were geography specific, like the yeah. one you were just talking about. But I think that if you look at the faith of the seven, you know, Martin has said this is sort of loosely based on Catholicism. But I think that there's a lot of different stages of Roman religion mm. in the faith of the seven. Right. And I think everything, even going back to sort of the, the, the early Andals that are living in these hills, 
Um, the fact that there are actually seven, uh, seven aspects of God. This, this is all very sort of early Roman mythology stuff. And then you see the Romans grab on to sort of Mithras worship. You go into some of these myth, uh, uh, Mithraic temples and you see seven altars. Hmm. And one of the altars is to a raven, but then you've got like a soldier and you've got a, you know, a, a, a father. And then, of course, you've got you – know, you, you, when you move into the, the Christian era of mm-hmm. the Roman Empire, you bring in like the Virgin Mary. And so n- now you're mm-hmm. getting – so I think I think what what Martin does with most of religion his religions is he kind of starts with a key concept mm-hmm. like he may start with the key concept of like trinity mm-hmm. but then what he'll do is he'll borrow from like a bunch of different puzzles right and like force a few pieces together or maybe then, go backwards in a, a a religion's evolution and be like what if this gene was dominant yes. instead of this one yes yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So what yeah, what if what if when Christianity emerged, it borrowed the Mithras right. 7 instead of the, you know, the sort of the the trinitarian this trinitarian mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. um the father son and holy yeah. ghost. So yeah. So I think I think I think that's what uh, in a lot of cases I think Martin is doing. He's sort of really studying the medieval world and grabbing from a bunch of different religions and sort of putting them into the gravity well. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Of one particular concept, like the Trinity or right. something like that. Right. We should probably say that the the book, this particular book, uh-huh. Gods of Thrones, that that we we really are dealing with both books and yes, and HBO universe. We're like like we're biblical scholars trying to decide what's canon and what's apocryphal. Yeah, no, we right? got we got the gospel, we got Gospel of John, Gospel of Matthew, and they are certainly not saying the same thing. And we're comparing and contrasting. So. We will call out sometimes in the book. This is a show only detail, right? Like the hound latching onto the faith of Relor. Mm-hmm. That's show only. Mm-hmm. In the book, it seems like if you buy it, if you mm-hmm. buy the gra- grave digger theory, mm-hmm. seems like he's latched on in some way to the faith of the seven. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so in the book, and he we, does that in the show too. But it's just that, like half an episode, right? He is half an episode, <laughs> and then he gets adopted by the sure. That's how long a pacifist lives in in George's <laughs> world. Right, right. Um, okay, yeah, no. So I just want to make that clear that this book is for both kinds of fans. Yes, right? yes. Like if you have been listening to our spoiler section for a long time, then you're going to be right at home with these right. with these books. Uh so we're going to be taking feedback, of course, uh, Game of Thrones at BaldMove.com, or there'll be some topics on the forums uh, if you want to check out our Game of Thrones section on the forums. Uh, since this is our first in the series, we don't have any feedback, but Anthony and I did do some Q&As on Reddit, and I thought just to get the ball rolling, yeah. we'd consider a couple of the questions from there. Anani Matthew uh, says, What society or civilization within Westeros or Essos seems to be the most agnostic or atheist as a whole? And what modern society is the closest parallel? Well, would would you say the Maesters? I think yeah, we're both in agreement that the the Maesters of the Citadel seem to be the most secular of societal segments. You know, it's a really good question because this is one of those one of those times where we don't know enough about the Maesters yet to actually do a full chapter in in either volume. But it, it definitely looks like the way that Martin has set this thing up toward the end of Dance. That the maesters are super important, and they have sort of their own sort of political machinations, right? 
and um, <clears throat> you know maybe explicitly sort of anti-Targaryen, but we cert- we we just don't know enough. We don't know enough about their motives or how how, how they imagine the 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 chess board to look to to imagine which pieces they'll move around. I and there's even like we get in I don't want to spoil too much of a fan theory section, but we, we traffic a little bit in the theory about the 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 Maesters really going further than just, you know, subtly nudging, but to the idea that they might have engineered the Faith of the Seven. Right. That yeah. this is like a a, a an engineered secular thing that they're trying to an opiate for the masses yeah to to bend society to their will there's you know evidence and especially in the books a where, milk of the poppy for the populace yeah. <laughs> a milk for a milk of the populace yeah so you know yeah that's right so i mean it would i mean I, I, it, it I, makes I, a lot of sense and also in the books themselves they even talk about they introduce the idea you know there's radical mystical maester at the citadel who kind of spreads this conspiracy theory about the maesters being behind right. uh, and the I death think, of the, 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 the dragons themselves. I like think they, this is why Sam ends up getting some POV chapters Yeah, in uh, tor- toward the end um, is that basically we're going to move Sam. We're going to, we're going to move with Sam mm-hmm. down to old town mm-hmm. and Sam's going to get to learn about all of the sort of the view of politics from Old Town, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But yeah, but that but the theory that we play with, I think, in chapter four of this book, mm-hmm. is that maybe the Faith of the Seven is completely invented because people basically <laughs> they need some they need something to mm-hmm. to latch onto, and of course. People like to worship themselves, right? And so, if you come up with these seven archetypes, you'll be able to, like Jamie. Yeah, everybody. Jamie in loves the warrior. Yeah, right? everyone can find the one that right. they that they like identify with. So maybe the maesters have invented this religion specifically to sort of as a veneer, mm-hmm. as a, as a veneer, so they can do what they they can do their power plays behind the scenes. Another question, uh, Number Muncher wanted to know what are what's the most surprising or fun trivia factoid about real world religions that you uncovered in your research. Go, you go first. Okay, so I remember there's this one section where we we're talking about you know fertility goddesses and how they you know tie into I can't remember if it's the faith of the seven or something. Oh yeah, well because the but- mother is. Uh, she oversees the births, right? So it's she's a kind of fertility goddess, right, right, right. And if you look around the world, there's tons of fertility go- goddesses, right? But not always, right? And you you said there's you as it's kind of an offhand example. You quote this ancient Egyptian religious text, yes, that basically has God jerking himself off into his own mouth. And he spits spit it out to give life. He spits and, his the seed, his own seed, and it's the the description is so like dryly religious, pornographic, <laughs> god like that's some shit you'd see on the the really shady sections of Pornhub, right? Well, this is the and kind I was of- like, I remember sending a note back like, is this quote for real? <laughs> like, it is it, it just I just burst out laughing. Well, it's one of these it's one of these things that I try. It, it's a real it's a real poem. It's yep. a real Egyptian. poem poem from yeah, the creation old, myth from the old kingdom yep and um i tried to include it in a previous book and the response that i got was you, you I, I know it's real but you can't this is just too disgusting the publisher said no you <laughs> so can't. i figured look if i can't <laughs> if i can't include this poem right 
in a Game of Thrones book, then you'll never get it. I'll you'll, never, you'll never be able get to, it out. Yeah, right now. So yeah, that I think. Oh, I didn't know that you had like this is like an old uh, score you're trying to settle. This is an old score, and yeah. I and I win. Just so you know. <laughs> no, I, you, you, I was not the angel on your shoulder this time. I'm like, you got it. No. You got you got any more of those ancient Egyptian quotes? I got I got close on this one. I okay. So yeah, uh, interesting tidbit. Okay, so this is actually a volume two detail because mm-hmm. that's a, one of the Kickstarter milestones. Is mm-hmm. we we had a goal and we quit in in, in writing it. We, it quickly became apparent that we were going to have to start cutting things because we to hit to hit our publishing goal of of we just had way too much material. Mm-hmm. But then the other way to look at that is you know with a little bit more brainstorming and writing and research you could take this and come up with two books out of it that's right so and so one of the kickstarter milestones yeah. we hit was doing two volumes instead of just one i think at some point we had a conversation like well the chapter is long enough mm-hmm. and but we still have things on the table but we still have some cool stuff we want to talk yeah, i hate about. that we didn't get to this part or that yeah. part and or... i and i i think it was just like ah, let's do two yeah so all right so this is a volume two detail because we don't talk about the dragon cult until volume two. So this is sort of a comparative religions approach. Mm -hmm. We're putting uh, the fictional religions of Westeros in conversation with real life religion. I was really wrestling to find comparative religions that are more Eastern because Martin's world is basically Western. Right, you know, Westeros, basically. Right. In fact, and when you start getting into the the Jade Sea, that's and the right. Shadow, where it you, starts to get or it starts yeah. to get Asian. If you go all the way to Yt, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you get some parallels with Eastern religion, uh-huh. but we know very little about Yt, right? Right, right, right. Um, but the closest analog I could come up with for the Valerians mm-hmm. is a dragon god mythology out of China, mm. also Dr- a famous empire. Also a very famous ancient empire. One of the factoids that I learned was that um, so dragons start off as sort of alligator or crocodile lore. Mm -hmm. And so they're associated with rivers and water and whatnot. And the reason why it rains is that a dragon has gone from the river to the heavens. Right. So dragons are kind of like evaporation. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Dragons are and so dragons are actually good because you need you need rain. Right, they're not fearsome beasts from no. like the they're they're, they're fearsome the, the, in the same way a crocodile would be. Right, but they're ultimately good. So, but you have sort of this yin yang thing going mm-hmm. on with dragons and tigers. So if, I've heard about this crouch. They some of them yeah. crouch, some of them hide. It's <laughs> that's right. That's right. So okay. So one of the things that these ancient farmers would do in China. If they wanted it to rain, is that they knew that uh, dragons were afraid of tigers, mm. so they'd take a tiger skull and they would drag it along the bed of the river to like scare, and the... that would scare the dragon right in the sky. And then there you go, you get you get the there rain. Go. So that was a fact that I didn't, I, I, you know, I don't know why it, it gives me such joy, but right. uh, it probably just a force of habit. Learning new things. Some people say yes. just the act itself is pleasurable. I think that that's probably where we should uh, leave things uh, for now. Again, if you have any questions for us, if you want to talk about the book that we've written uh, or you want to talk about uh, obviously when we get, when Fire and Blood comes out, we're going to be kind of dividing that 
into thirds and, and kind of discussing it as a group. But if you have any questions for myself or Anthony over the next couple of weeks, uh, it's easy to get in touch with us. Game of Thrones at baldmove.com is the email address. And also there'll be a forum thread on forums.baldmove.com to discuss uh, this stuff. But yeah, well, next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about books. And then four, four months later, we're going to get back into the TV show and see how this thing gets wrapped up. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And again, if you want to get this book, Gods of Thrones, Anthony, I've written, uh, you can go to Amazon. There will be a link for it. There is uh, right now, it's just the ebook version. Uh, the paperbacks will be available as soon as we get that paperback converted and we get the books in our Kickstarter backers' hands. But we're really excited about it. I'm really proud of the book. We'll talk more about the contents in particular. There's lots of. Lots of reasons to recommend the book. I think it's it's interesting. You're going to learn some things about Game of Thrones. You're going to see characters and institutions through new lenses. Uh, you might learn some things about the real world. There's fantastic art by our artist Chase Stone, who did a lot of the art for A World of Ice and Fire. Uh, we had him do, you know, since uh, you, you don't want to step on Martin's toes too much, we had him do more what-if and fan theory type art. and, and Which is fantastic. And the cover... The cover, uh, which is the first men, like depicting the the war of the the first men and the children as the 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 men are burning the sacred weirwoods, I think is is just so good. He he's amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. it's uh, this and, and I like everyone that helped us along the way. Our typesetter Steve Gentile, uh, our editors. Like I I just I can't believe we made such a professional book. I can. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I just feel like it's like it's I, all at, the, the, at every step of the process. I thought, like, as I thought, we would deliver solid material. Like, like the text would be good. But like, I, I've I've said this a lot on a couple other different podcasts. Like, I feel like now that I've seen the finished, it's like it, it's like they took our text off the street, uh, gave it a nice cut and a shave, and put it in a nice suit. And now it's like present. It's like not just the the guy rambling on the corner. He might have some interesting things to say, but now he looks presentable. You might listen to him. Yeah, no, it's it's it, it's good. It's good. Um, hopefully, it's a fun read. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think at the end of the day, it's it, it's not going to be too stodgy. But you know, we might we might uh, sneak some medicine in with the, the the sugar from time to time. Indeed, that's it for us. We'll be back next week with another uh, discussion about Gods of Thrones. Check that out again on Amazon. There'll be a link uh, on how you can uh, purchase it in the show notes. And until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Anthony. We'll see you later.